just a bit late. We're still going to allow one hour for this session, um, which means that we'll cut into what was going to be my final comments. I'll just kind of round up very briefly at the end. Um, but after this session is um, a series of two performances, and the session and the performances are interlinked. Um, so this is our kind of final uh, moment of the day. Um, this session, Possibilities of Rural Belongings, Embodying Liminality, um, is a conversation between artists Jade Montserrat and Harold Offay, um, and it considers critical approaches and practices from the positions of being black British artists in rural environments, and it's chaired by Hansi Mumadu Gordon. Um, we felt... Um, we really wanted to host this panel and we wanted to invite artists who were thinking about this very specific question in the British context um, in critical ways um, in the contemporary moment. Um, so we're really delighted that we can both have the conversation and the performances to think about this question um, collectively today. Harold offers an artist working in a range of media, including performance, video, photography, learning and social arts practice. Offe often employs humour as a means to confront the viewer with historical narratives and contemporary culture, and is interested in the space created by the inhabiting or embodying of history. He's been exhibited widely in the UK and internationally, including at Tate Britain and Modern, Studio Museum Harlem, South London Gallery, MacVal, Kulturhuis at Stockholm and the Kunsthalschall Lottenberg, among many others. And to introduce Jade Monsterat, the uh, recipient, uh, she's the recipient of the Stuart Hall Foundation Scholarship, which supports her PhD, um, Race and Representation in Northern Britain in the Context of the Black Atlantic, a creative practice project, and the development of her work from her black diasporic perspective in the north of England. Jade's Rainbow Tribe Project, a combination of historical and contemporary manifestations of black culture from the perspective of the black diaspora, is central to the way she is producing her body of work, including No Need for Clothing and its iterations, as well as her performance work, Review. And finally, our chair, Hansi Momadou-Gordon, is an independent curator and writer. She's founder of Future Assembly, a platform for artist development and experimentation. And she was formerly co-curator of the second Lagos Biennial of Contemporary Art in 2019 and interim program digital concept manager of the Stuart Hall Foundation. Um, and recent projects and collaborations include co-curating Untitled, Art on the Conditions of Our Time, New Art Exchange, and curating concentrate, uh, Concerning Symmetry, um, Selected Artists Moving Image from the Emily Stipp Foundation collection, and producing Promised Land, um, which was a culture and conflict project, and um, her first book, Nine Weeks, um, was published with Stevenson in 2016. So um, thank you all for being here with us today, and I'll hand over to you, Hansi, now. Thank you. for being here and, and uh, for the invitation uh, for this panel. Um, I've kind of thought about the, the title of this and decided to question it. I think it's something that can be read as a question. Possibilities of rural belongings embodying liminal liminality or maybe impossibilities of rural belongings um, embodying centrality. I don't know. I think there's different ways that we can try to approach this topic. Um, the kind of subtitle to that is um, from the position of being a black British artist in the rural environment. So that very um, definitely positions each of these practitioners um, from that kind of racialized perspective, um, which is a, a kind of 
a personal narrative in a way. It's um, the body politic narrative. And um, to open up that discussion um, and to, um, I guess, allow um, different kinds of narratives to come out through the discussion, I've decided to just share a little bit about my own background, and um, which is briefly just to maybe underline why I was invited to chair this, this panel. So, um, so the, the images that I've put up here um, are of different kinds of rural landscapes. Um, the, um, and they're, they're rural landscapes that kind of represent me as a, a black woman in Britain from a number of different perspectives. So um, on the top left-hand side, this is actually St. Elizabeth in rural Jamaica. My husband's family are from Jamaica, and this is um, their kind of rural environment, and the environment in which they live, and a place where I've visited. Um, the bottom, oh, sorry, the top right-hand side, um, this is a kind of rural landscape in um, West Africa, in Edo State, which is where my father's family are from. Um, the bottom left here, this is um, this image, and all of these these three I took from Google, and this bottom left is. Um, the approach to TP Valley. Now, I don't know how many people are conscious of what that is, but it's basically like an alternative community that is technically and actually off-grid um, in rural West Wales, and that is where I was supposed to be born. So I, I asked my mum, you know, tell me the story about where I was supposed to be born. She said, you were supposed to be born in a bender by the river, and that's what this picture is. Um, fortunately, I think, for me, I, I came early, so I was born in Lister Hospital, which is actually not too far from here. Um, but this is a picture of um, my, myself, my older sister, and my mum, and this is the bender where I spent a lot of my kind of early years. So I just wanted to kind of share that um, and share these other images because I want to open up the idea that um, black bodies exist in rural landscapes in, in a variety of different ways. And obviously, this discussion, you know, we're in England, we're in the UK, so we are positioning it within that context as well. Um, but I want to keep it kind of open. And I just noted down some other kind of points that I wanted to share with you from this individual um, experience of being a black creative in the rural. And then I've asked Jade and, and Harold to do the same. So they're going to talk about their practice and then we'll have a, a few questions as well. Um, so I'm just going to share some of these notes that kind of came to mind when thinking about this topic. Um, so this community um, was formed, um, I think, in the 70s, and there was a, a definite movement of um, people from the, the cities of the UK out into the Welsh countryside. Um, I believe we've got people here from Aberystwyth University um, who are partnering on this project, so they'll be very much aware of this kind of influx of um, English people that kind of set up in these very alternative communities um, and that was the context in which I um, was raised and grew up and they did that to find alternative ways of living it was often off-grid often very radical creative alternative wild and possibly free and I want to interrogate that idea of freedom um, I was really interested in something that Grace said because actually what did happen is that these um, communities often replicated a lot of the issues within the urban around um, sexism and, and racism as, as well. Um, I also lived in women's only spaces um, that could only exist because they were hidden in the wilderness. I ran through meadows, blew grass, flicked cow packs, jumped in waterfalls, celebrated bluebells, snowdrops and daffodils. I stood on thistles and slugs, I climbed trees, swam in lakes in March rain, listened to half of my year group talk about the lambing season or collecting hay. I learned to sleep under a night sky that was pitch black and deadly silent. 
decorated with flourishes of shooting stars, awaited a harvest moon, where commons meant common land, that one-fifth of Wales is mapped as access land where public, where public have the right to access on foot. I got paralytically drunk at a very young age and helped myself to magic mushrooms growing in my school field. And I think that's a right passage that lots of people in the rural will relate to. I rode on horses, climbed, um, camped in tents, swam in waterfalls in June, made dream catches. I was also part of the free party rave scene that ignited in hidden forest clearings by the side of quarries and lakes, a freedom that only, an abandon that only the rural allowed. Now this, uh, Wales um, was an, um, my upbringing in Wales was an incredibly creative um, environment. I think Wales as a country has creativity really at its heart and, and, um, and I experienced that kind of growing up there and the Aberystwyth Art Centre was probably my closest link to like, the contemporary art world but there was space there for this kind of alternative culture to flourish and that then kind of allowed a sense of creativity. Um, so although I wasn't the, the same, I don't think that um, that actually shaped me. I think what shaped me more than anything was my childhood within rural Wales. And I put here English, Welsh, black, because what actually happened is that when I was in Wales, um, as many of you probably know, is one of the oldest colonies of England. Um, and that legacy was really felt still in the 80s and 90s when I went to school. And if I felt any kind of prejudice as a foreigner, it was for being a saison, which is English. Um, so it wasn't really about my, my race or perceived blackness at that time. Um, and it was only really my blackness that became apparent to me and became a more kind of political um, perspective in my life when I moved into the urban environment, which happened in my late teens, and I moved into the kind of city environment. I was kind of socialised as black. Now, I think that was probably an unusual experience, um, but I just wanted to share that because... Um, I'd like to actually open up this space to thinking about different kinds of, of black experience that maybe are not um, stereotypical or, or what we might be expecting to hear. Um, so the first um, point I wanted to, to share to both Harold and Jade, but I think we're going to start with Jade, is just to talk about their own kind of entry points into the topic, um, their experiences of, um, of being in, in the rural and, and coming to this, this question um, and share a bit about their practice and, and also a prelude to the performance that they'll each do. So you can uh, kind of take turns to that and then we'll, we'll have a few questions as well. So okay. do you want to start, Jade? Thank you, Hansi. Thank you. Um, so I can move these forward, can't I? Um, is that okay to do that? Or are you yeah, no, that's absolutely that? fine. You can just control yeah. as, you, as you want. Yeah. Uh, this is a performance called Clay um, where I'm digging in the... Um, it's actually near, um, I was thinking about it last night, it's uh, adjacent to a duck pond that was actually called Jade's Duck Pond until my mum divorced her ex-deceased husband who I lived with for 25 years, who didn't adopt me, and then changed the name of the duck pond where I learnt to swim to something else, I don't know what it's called now. But um, uh, this uh, performance um, uh, was made in... Um, a, a pit that was dug to um, presumably locate a water, relocate a water pipe near the duck pond. So I grew up on a, on a shooting estate that um, I went to live up on when I was three. My mum still lives there. It's completely off-grid. Um, no neighbours, generated electricity, gas lights. There's no gas lights anymore. 
There's no gas, luckily, anymore, um, which caused, um, well, it, it contributed to rising damp and, and our roof also was leaking. So our, our house, up until about six years ago, was kind of bubbling and alive and black um, and obviously has contributed to some of my mum's um, and my sort of respiratory problems. So I think I'm mentioning that particularly because it, it demonstrates um, something to do with ownership but also neglect of an area. So the, the property was bought um, uh, as land um, for um, Joe's brother, who's an arms dealer, to blow shit up on the um, on the land. This is all true, by the way. <laughs> uh, but um, so my introduction to the rural is that um, it was really very confusing because. Um, I had very little um, uh, exchange with the um, regular outside world. It, was, it still is a really isolated space. And then I was sent away because of um, sort of my disruption. Um, I, was I found the landscape a sanctuary but didn't respond very well to... Um, Education, so I was what was called a school refuser and went from to a lot of schools until I was then sent away to boarding school. And, uh, and those children, um, it was really difficult because I was very different and I wasn't at the time cognizant of class. Um, but I now realize that it didn't really matter that there was this shooting estate that I, I had sort of found myself in. Um, I was still sort of urbanised for a lot of my life. Um, uh, so it's a, almost like trying to um, present who, who I am. Um, so whilst I grew up sort of um, responding really instinctively to the land, like children do, making mud pies, um, and when I was a beater when I was I started beating when I was about six or seven years old and, and these um, men um, all men who shot um, weren't very good shots and they didn't really have the capacity to kill the birds humanely so it, instinctively I recognised how, how to do that with my hands um, at a very, very early age. So, um, as I say, it was a sanctuary and somewhere I could um, use to sort of self-heal or self-soothe in what was actually a really, really traumatic space. Um, so I've come back to this landscape, which is currently been mismanaged um, since, since he died. It's been bought by um, people who are using the land... Um, as a sort of theme park um, for Z-list celebrities who all drive brain drovers and use this ancient track um, and are now eroding our, our, our um, pathway. So my mum still lives there. 
our, our driveway um, and releasing up to um, 60,000 birds on a 200-acre estate. So the birds are pecking their, each other's bottoms. I've never heard so much gunfire in my whole life. Um, and I think um, sort of describing those traumas um, helps to situate or locate my practice um, in by sort of observing the, the microcosm with that is, and then the, is it that way around and then I can then branch out to the macro um, because these ways of um, I, I haven't uh, done any work on non-violent communication yet apart from what I've learnt myself but all of these strategies um, that we've talked about today um, I think are integral to, to how we collectively look at, at land use and, 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 and how we um, uh, sustain um, uh, um, ourselves um, and that there's I think what I'm looking for is understanding what a co collective ownership would be. And, and um, like Grace, um, a little, I have um, uh, a lifelong project called the Rainbow Tribe, which um, centralizes Josephine Baker at the core because um, for me, I'm at one time furious that um, so many of these um, uh, charismatic cult leaders in a way um, uh, to quote Grace uh, allow us to, or allow, allow me like Josephine Baker to observe how she formulated the social experiment of um, 12 adopted children whilst at the same time um, capitalising on her body um, through entertainment to pay, afford to continue this social experiment which is um, uh, which she created through this idea well through her wanting to be a mother um, but also the idea of um, transcending race which of course is an impossibility so I think what I'm talking about is um, decolonisation within my practice um, and so I'll make work in parallel with reading histories that I'm catching up on that aren't exclusive to um, our landscapes and the, the rural, but um, uh, allow me to understand um, how our, um, what could be um, considered common land is actually really... Um, uh, owned in that sort of violent way um, and I've just put in that image there the, the property is on a ley line so these excuse me bastards that have bought up this property they they don't know what's coming with to them if they're messing about with something on a ley line so I'll leave it at that at the moment and then we can Oh, and then the, uh, I made this that's playing, um, this is playing tonight at art night. So I, I, I just made it on the, on the land there. I don't know if you can hear it. I don't know if it's going to play. It doesn't. 
Well, we can come back to that. Is, do you want to just say a little bit about your performance here? Oh, yeah. Thanks. And then we'll pass on to Harold. After, we'll be going up to Amphis, uh, where I'll make a new performance called Love, Love. And um, it's conflating, I suppose, performances that have come before where I'm doing a repetitive action. But um, what I've realised that is that whilst I was living in this landscape but cut off, um, uh, I was um, training but not consciously. The beauty of the landscape is that it's so seductive and you want to be out in, in it and active and, and um, nourished and renewing that space as well and um, sharing it. Um, which hasn't been the same since I um, left here. Um, and what I found is that there's a demand for um, performances that I make that, are, that are sort of centre endurance, but that actually sustaining that is impossible if um, I don't feel my, my body and I don't train and I don't take care of it. So um, I've used some of my training methods to make this construct this performance, thinking about um, care and, um, and but also prowess. Um, I think. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Jade. All right, Harold. Do you want to come into the conversation here and, and kind of share with us your entry point into the topic and a little bit about your work? Um, maybe I'll do that by talking through the work. Yeah. A little yeah. Bit. However you want. Um, to. I mean, I haven't got a, a lived experience in relation to kind of the rural sphere or landscape. Um, uh, so I think part of what I'm interested in is, is part of the idea of what the, the kind of imaginary rural or that kind of the cultural imaginary of, particularly of the kind of English kind of countryside, rural idyll. Um, Um, so, uh, I think in terms of what I'm going to be kind of presenting later, the genesis of which came from doing a residency here at Wising Arts Centre in 2017, um, uh, uh, so spending seven weeks over that summer kind of here, and um, I sort of came in as a starting point, I've been doing this project for a very long time and still am. Um, which uh, responds to a kind of collection of album covers of um, uh, black singers from the 70s and 80s, um, which I then re-perform in various contexts, so either live or as photographs. So it's a kind of restaging. Um, and uh, most of the series is kind of focused on um, figures like Grace Jones and, and re-enacting these album covers. Um, but there was a subset that I'd been wanting to explore for a long time and hadn't, so Wising provided an opportunity to kind of sort of do that. Maybe I should show the context of those. Um, yeah. So um, so I've been collecting these album covers of like um, uh, sort of male, mostly American soul singers 
from this three-year period in the early 80s, where they're kind of inhabiting this kind of like position, this lounging, I call it lounging, reclining, repose, posture. Um, and ju I was just really interested in the kind of cultural moment and how through these album covers they were adopting this pose and the symbolism of that and what it might say about kind of masculinity, black masculinity, the kind of um, politics of representation, commercialism. So for me, the album cover functions as, as this kind of, you know, because an album cover's purpose is to represent an identity and to communicate music. Um, so, yeah, anyway, so um, very simply, I sort of brought that into this space of Wising. And so part of that was, so there's a specific post by Teddy Pendergrass, who was in the other image of Central. Um, American soul singer, very uber masculine, kind of like sexy music, you know, music to make babies to. Um, uh, it's kind of like a sort of Barry White contemporary, uh, for those of you that don't know. And um, I, again, I was really interested in this kind of like this, this pose that he adopts. And then, so one of the things was to kind of like repeat this image and place it within this kind of like the landscape here. Um, and, and taking it and placing it in a different context as a way of thinking about not only the gesture and the pose, but also suddenly it dawned on me this idea of like inhabiting also the landscape and a whole history of, um, particularly within kind of the Western canon of A, that pose as a way of representing the body, whether that's in antiquity or within um, kind of modernism, Manet, you know, various other, Henry Moore we might think of as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so just thinking about the kind of cultural kind of loading of that. Um, and I think for me what was really interesting coming into the space, I think often how residencies and retreats kind of work for artists is that kind of um, having to kind of confront a completely different kind of context. And often, you know, the residency as a kind of space is a, you know, it can be seen as a kind of an escapism from that kind of urban kind of context. Um, um, uh, but, but for me, it allowed me to kind of really think through a whole series of concerns and cliches. Often I, I like to kind of just directly engage with the kind of cliche. Um, and, uh, so for me, the idea of the kind of like landscape, particularly English landscape, which is kind of like there's this conceit at the heart of the kind of English landscape of kind of naturalism when it's a really manufactured kind of landscape, like heavily, heavily constructed and shaped and authored and um, manicured. Um, obviously, it's industrial, it's a working space, but I guess I'm also interested in the kind of romanticism that is invested in the kind of English kind of rural, idyll, thatched cottages, kind of warm beer, whatever, um, which is a kind of sort of myth, a kind of like, you know, I think, you know, most states or most nations have a kind of like foundation myths. And um, I remember a few years ago reading um, Simon Sharma's Landscape and Memory, and there's a whole chapter about kind of Arcadia and... Um, hearts of oak and the kind of relationship of Englishness to kind of the landscape and how that's been heavily kind of sort of shaped 
and you know manufactured and um, to the point I think of a kind of um, uh, yeah there's a kind of complete submersion into into the kind of fantasy of it um, so I think uh, when Lotta in, invited me, and we were having various conversations about kind of responding to the wider context of the rural assembly. I was kind of aware of like, oh, <laughs> um, I think my entry point to it is not as, is not a lived experience. But I think thinking through this kind of imaginative space was kind of important. Um, I should just kind of so yeah, the lounging project. I'll just finish talking about that. It's kind of gone on to various other iterations. So. Um, yeah, I've been placing it in these different contexts. So this is a performance I did for 154, the African Art Fair at Somerset House. Um, uh, so it's a kind of two-person performance with Eben, who's going to be performing with me later as well. Um, and again, it was kind of more about a kind of choreography of these kind of poses and gestures and embedding ourselves within the screening space in relation to the original images. Um, and then again, this was again at the Tetley in Leeds for another exhibition. Um, and this is Samra, who's another performer that I'm working with, collaborating here. Um, and again, it was about, again, putting that pose in, a, in, in occupying space, the kind of gallery space, um, performers just inhabiting these, these kind of poses. Um, so yeah, talking to Lotta was really thinking about... Um, how to kind of respond and I really wanted to kind of take on a series of gestures and think about I guess representations of the black body in the English landscape and the initial images I was sort of finding were very much I think there's a whole history of kind of like the, the black body being working and laboring within certainly within the kind of western canon um, and I, I wanted to think about this other space um, and the possibility of um, uh, occupying the space in terms of kind of leisure and thinking about um, somehow kind of like encountering the romanticism that is often there. So I was just thinking about like, so what I've been doing is kind of looking at often how um, black people and people of colour are representing themselves. Like, so I've been looking through a lot of travel blogs and... Um, people taking photographs while they're on European tours, um, uh, as a kind of fashion images, so popular cultural, um, also thinking through uh, music videos, so people like Solange Knowles, um, as really revisiting um, Lynette Yadon-Boache's paintings of these kind of figurative images of... Um, these black figures, often in, in landscapes, nondescript, non-specific landscapes, but um, there's a kind of like pleasure often, they're dancing or, or inhabiting the space in a way that isn't, um, isn't about a discourse of kind of labor or suffrage or work. Um, so um, yeah, the, the, the performance that is happening later is partly trying to kind of engage with this. Um, so a lot of these, poses and gestures that we're presenting have come from looking at these various sources, but also taking on some of these kind of cliches of the kind of romantic and, and how one engages. So, I mean, there's a kind of classic Caspar David Friedrich kind of high Northern European romanticism, you know, looking out 
and the kind of mastery of that, which is often represented in a lot of these images of these kind of people of colour. It's become a, a trope that that's how we kind of engage with the space, um, like these vistas. So I wanted to kind of engage with that. Um, I'll just finish off by talking about the music. So actually, um, the performance is kind of framed by this kind of symphonic piece, um, which is something I discovered through another project. Um, early this year, working in Croydon in South London and came across a composer called uh, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, not to be confused with uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the English romantic 18th century poet. But it's interesting that one is named after the other. Um, so my person, the composer, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, was a late 19th century, early 20th century classical composer. Um, his father was from Sierra Leone, was a doctor. Um, his mother was English. Um, and um, he grew up in London, in Croydon. Um, he's a well-known figure in Croydon, but not outside of Croydon very much. Um, and in the late 19th century, he was this kind of really incredibly successful black British composer who was particularly successful in America, played to Theodore Roosevelt, met Theodore Roosevelt, um, went on extensive tours, was a contemporary of Elgar, was considered the African Mahler. So it's this kind of like whole kind of, I don't know, um, massive trajectory and career that he had. Unfortunately, he died uh, um, in 1912, age 37. Um, and so there's a kind of limited kind of sort of body of work that he kind of created. Um, but the piece that is sort of framing the performance is his symphonic variations on an African air, um, which is the piece that he created. Um, really, he was really influenced by kind of um, African-American folk spirituals. Um, and the piece is also an attempt for him to, I think, engage with a kind of imaginary space of Africa, because he never got to go to Sierra Leone, where his father was originally from, never got to go to Africa. So the kind of broad spectrum of this um, symphonic piece is about the imaginative space of an African air, um, but, it, but it also exists very much within the kind of classical European kind of romantic symphonic canon as well. So I was trying to think of, a, a, in some ways, the way that, that that work operates and the way that he was trying to operate in terms of bringing those things t together within that. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, yeah, I also wanted to pick up on um, music, and, and when I kind of first saw these these new images from this kind of evolution of the, the cover series, it does feel quite incongruous to see you know you lounging in these kind of rural environments. But as you were speaking, then I started to think about the the music that would have been on these records, and actually the possibility that you know if we're talking pre-internet, maybe this was actually an introduction of these black figures into the rural environment, assuming that you know, they're possibly fans of these music and it was you know, a form of communication that was kind of circulating in the rural and people having access to those, those images. Yeah, I think, I mean, what's also interesting about the, the kind of context of those records is that they, they come at a point where a lot of those artists are trying to kind of cross over into main, mainstream. I mean, with white audiences, ostensibly. Mm. So coming out of a kind of R&B, 
I mean, American music is still incredibly segregated, but like, in terms of radio and stuff like that. But um, there's definitely a kind of play um, to uh, a sort of broader mass market kind of white mainstream yeah. pop audience. So there's somehow the embodying of that position is, feels like a way into that, that space, you know, in terms of challenging those tropes of black masculinity. Mm. Um, because like by the nineties, with like sort of like rap and NWA, it's completely different like, yeah. discourse of presentation. But I also but, think but that it's it is often the entry point to the black experience, like mm -hmm. music album yes, covers absolutely. as well. So yeah. just thinking about yeah. that is yeah. quite interesting. Um, so, so lots of different kind of questions um, that I want to, to start to open up. Um, with you, one of the things you, you touched upon already, and this relates to your work as well, Jade. Um, we, we're talking about this idea that the 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 the, the raw being landscaped or, or kind of manicured or manufactured, um, and there's a number of different kind of dichotomies that come out um, through the discussion. Um, but I wanted to open up this idea of the kind of wild versus tamed, um, thinking about the colonial garden, which is is planned um, and exists, you know, in, in different contexts globally, um, but also thinking um, beyond the kind of, um, the kind of conceptual, conceptualizing of the landscape, thinking about land art and conceptual practice, and actually what you're seeing there is the kind of, the action of the mind on the landscape, um, as opposed to a kind of rugged, wild, West Wales, you know, the type of place, the environment that I was kind of brought up in, which maybe has the illusion of being wild and, and free. So I don't know if um, you want to kind of pick up any of, any of that. Harold. <laughs> um, yeah. Um. I mean, there's a few different ideas yeah. in there, and um, mm. one of the things we touched on already is this idea of a kind of planned landscape. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, it's interesting, I mean, um, I hope I'm not dodging the question, but I was just thinking about, I have sort of done various projects that, like, my entry point always in to the idea of the rural and has been through kind of specific art projects. So, mm -hmm. like, I've done a project for the National Trust and I did another project in a, um, as a big sort of stately home um, in Leeds called Temple Newston, mm -hmm. which has a capability brown kind of landscape kind of garden which is kind of responding to so uh, yeah I spent a lot of time really thinking about the kind of histories of these spaces and um, for, for me I've always come back to this idea of Arcadia and um, and, and in England there's a kind of just an extensive garden a mm -hmm. cultivated kind of sort yeah. of garden and the, the idea of civilization that comes with like the classical notion of Arcadia um, uh, and so, and I think <laughs> it's interesting that that, that that is becomes also a tool of kind of colonialism as well in terms of kind of being kind of exported. Yeah. In terms of um, there's a, this is a bit of an anecdote, and I've been trying to kind of like unpack it a little bit. Um, so there's this notion of like Hearts of Oak, which is a kind of sort of um, and the White Albion. Again, they're all kind of English romantic kind of like sort of tropes. Um, uh, but in Ghana, one of the biggest 
because I'm a, I'm a Ghanaian heritage, was born in Accra. Um, one of the biggest football teams is Hearts of Oak. Um, so I was grow up, grew up with this idea of Hearts of Oak, and um, my dad supports Hearts of Oak, Kamal City. Um, and, <laughs> and I never really understood where that kind of came from. Um, and it's so rooted in a kind of Englishness, and obviously the British kind of brought you know, football to kind of... Um, to, to, to Africa, to the world, whatever. Um, and um, the, the, those kind of sort of values were kind of sort of transported. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm always thinking through these kind of histories and the kind of imaginative kind of cultural space that we don't necessarily kind of question and unpack mm. ever really. Um, and how there's within that there is always a very standard narrative that excludes Um, uh, like I was really interested in uh, the historian David um, who did this like history of black Britain or British black people whatever going back to Roman times and finding like you know obviously the Romans were very multicultural diverse as part of the empire so finding the bones of this woman from Africa in, I think, Surrey or Kent or somewhere. Like, mm. So this, the, like, the idea that there's a kind of place here for thousands of years was kind of really, a, I don't know, I'm just, I'm rambling a bit, yeah. a little bit maybe, but... Not at all, um, I know. <laughs> unpack that. There's definitely... But you, um, you scratch the surface and actually there's more there yeah, yeah, within absolutely. those... Well, that was um, kind of one of the questions I wanted to, to ask again, which is this idea around kind of ownership and propriety. Um, and thinking about whether people of colour in the UK can ever kind of have a legitimate claim of, of ownership on the rural. Yeah, I think... Uh, do you mind? Yeah, um, Jake. <laughs> I think um, what I, I, it, I'm noticing is that um, inadvertently we recognise that um, our landscapes are um, incredibly important to our health and well-being. Um, but it's almost there's almost like a safety valve so you might go to a festival and release um, your tension in a very controlled environment and I think what I've learned um, sort of empirically is that I it's so so, so rooted in in class so um, uh, the ownership of land in the UK so um, I think it's really interesting thinking about, do you remember the black farmer? Yeah, yeah. And I um, made a pilgrimage to go and see the black farmer when I was about um, in my mid-twenties or something. I'd driven in a Land Rover that I also used to have to get out every now and then and bang it with a hammer underneath. I can't remember why. Um, and I think the break, it was really dangerous anyway, me driving there, but I got there. And there was no um, entry point for me, I felt. It, it, it could have easily been my attitude. But um, I, we, we weren't a meeting of minds because um, the black farmer was so invested in the um, structures that allowed him to enter into... Um, being a black farmer by exploiting his blackness for the 
Conservative Party, essentially. Um, so, um, and also thinking about this, what you were talking earlier about wildness um, and taming. So what I'm also noticing is that, um, uh, yeah, again, inadvertently, people who are trying to control landscapes um, uh, or make them work the way that the local town or village would work um, is a, it erodes the the magic of the landscape itself so um, but I, I am certainly seeing that people who have the money which is again a class um, and a symbol of status to be able to use that space um, determines who can use that space yeah. and ha has access, yeah. Um. So both of you um, work in a kind of performative way and I wanted to touch on this idea of hyper-visibility um, and, and wondering whether being a person of colour in a rural environment is always, by necessity, a kind of performance. Yeah, so um, I, I was introduced to these shooters as a daughter who looks like the way I do because I was, um, they, I would, I was brought up in a coal shed. So it was it, like all my, um, my I, it's like I was thinking about it earlier, like I'm melanated and that for everyone else is different. But for me growing up, there was nothing to hinge that on because at the same token, I thought that Eddie Murphy might be my father because I hadn't seen any other people of colour. Um, we didn't have a television and there certainly weren't any people of colour in my vicinity or in my... So um, I think it's everyone else's perception mm -hmm. um, that is othering in the landscape as opposed to something that's rooted inside of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, what were you asking? No, about? I, 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 I absolutely relate to, yeah. to what you're saying because something that I've experienced is um, from going from feeling like absolutely at home in a, in a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere and, you know, running free yeah. to having spent a lot of time in the city and now actually feeling very self-conscious when I would go back and visit, you know, my home village. And, and that's an awareness that I probably gained at a later age about mm. my, my visibility as a black woman. Mm. Um, but I do, you know, I personally think that there is always an element of kind of performativity that comes with that. Yeah, I think there's this thing of, yeah, hyper-visibility. I, I, um uh, falling back on anecdotes again, but um, early this year I was doing a residency in Japan, and um, which involved meeting people that have lived in Japan, migrants, settled migrants, in including some black farmers actually. Um, um, but for me that experience has been framed by, while I was out there, um, reading um, James Baldwin's uh, Stranger in the Village, which is about his experience in the 1950s, going to a Swiss village. So he had a Swiss lover, and I think every summer would kind of go to this village where his lover was from. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's in notes on an, of a native son. Um, and he just talks about that othering experience of, and, and the gaze that he's kind of subjected to by 
the kind of villages. And it's a really good, um, um, for me, even though I didn't necessarily have that kind of oppressive experience in Japan, but just being aware of your hyper-visibility. Mm. And, you know, um, they gave me a bike, so I'd cycle around. And um, <laughs> quite, there, was, there was quite a few times when people... Uh, I remember, like, this, this woman with a child stopping in the street because I cycled by and Jim has got run over. It's just like... Because it was just, like, a kind of, yeah. kind of curiosity. So I was aware of that kind of sort of... Um, the spectacle of that, and um, uh, in a way, I was kind of playing up to that. In, in you know, <laughs> kind of like sort of these behaviours of exhibitionism, and, and my, one of the ways I was dealing with that was by directly, like, if people were looking, I would say hello, yeah. hi, you know, and sort yeah. of like, kind of in, engage with them, sort of d- but directly. It's also but overcompensating for it your, and I find that a lot where you're trying, to, where I'm trying to demonstrate that. I'm here and yeah. I know something yeah. about being here, mm-hmm. not just plonked. Do you think having a kind of performative practice helps you work through some of that experience? For me, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. So, but um, we can obviously take some questions from the room, but there was one other question I wanted to, to ask you both. Um, and whether... And this is, I guess, yeah, this is a, you know, a loaded question. I probably have my own answer, but I wanted to, and it's something that was just like a reaction to thinking about the title and topic and the framing of, of us three and the, the conversation, but it was also just wondering um, if a person of colour in the, in the English countryside can ever have an experience of the rural that's not mediated by race. I think it depends what perspective you're looking for. I mean, my experience has never been mediated by race in, in, in terms of just the experience of being in a space. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's also, but it is also when I, it's filtered through, um, when I think about the kind of context or I'm thinking through how I'm positioned more broadly. Yeah. Um, but in terms of just an experience, an embodied experience in the space, it's not. Yeah. You know, it's not not consciously always thinking about your blackness and all that sort of Yeah. yeah. That, um, that was one of the things that we discussed it, earlier on, uh, and one of the things that prompted me to share some of these other images of the kind of rural black sites of rural blackness globally, because mm-hmm. <laughs> there are many of them. But mm-hmm. Harold, you were then also thinking back to growing up in in Ghana, and mm-hmm. actually that being a very kind of rural experience mm-hmm. as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, again, just thinking about ways of opening up. The, the positioning. Um, is there anyone else who has a question that they want to put to their panel? I've like, got a question for Harold. I wanted to ask um, who do you think benefits from this upkeep of this image of English, the romantic English landscape? Could you say? Who, who do you think benefits from this upkeep of the image of the English rural landscape as romantic? Oh, well, I think. <laughs> um, I think conservative forces. I mean, I think, you know, I think Jay touched upon it. I mean, it, you know, it's an, still incredibly feudal um, uh, Britain, I think, in terms of kind of ownership and class politics. And I think to kind of really be invested in a kind of sort of um, 
this kind of English idyll that's devoid of diversity um, in the imagination, although the reality is often different, <laughs> um, you know, plays to, uh, you know, white supremacy and, and, and you know, um, I don't know, these kind of misguided nativist kind of tendencies. Um, but it also does that in the way that, you know, um, there's that, it reinforces an exclusion, like this doesn't belong to you, or like, I remember, I mean, I went to school in Haringey in the inner city, and we got sort of taken out to a farm, city farm, and um, there was only white, one white English person in my class of 30 people, everyone was from all over, and, um, <laughs> you know, and that, that was meant to be our kind of exposure, That's, and for a lot of us, that was the first time we actually went into, like, the book outside of London into that kind of sort of space. And it was just really deeply uncomfortable. I remember the, the sort of awkwardness of that. Um, and I feel like a lot of that, those, that kind of cultural history and collective memory, where amnesia it is actually, is still about excluding. Um, Just following on from that, I just wondered how uh, how would be have you got an idea of how to connect the urban back to the rural, particularly from your own perspective, in a way that doesn't do that, that is more authentic and doesn't feel like you're just being transported into a kind of zoo that's outside of the city. I don't, I don't know, that's kind of how it came across. It's a sort of an unothering experience again of. Some, the place, you know. How do you connect those two things up? I'm really interested in that in, in relation to how, how distant uh, uh, people are becoming from that, from the from nature, I suppose. Is that it's political though, isn't it? In terms of like our transport routes are so crap. So if we haven't got a functioning transport service, it's isolating people. I'm sure that people I'm worried for the young people in Scarborough town because I don't believe that they can afford welfare like I could bunk off when I was a kid when it was getting too much and I needed to, to be away. I don't believe that they, can, that they have that same opportunity. Our, bus, our buses are um, cut so that there's like, I think, it, I think there's one a week maybe into Hackness. I've never been able to catch the bus from Hackness. It's been totally isolating. But all of that surely helps to connect because at, at the same time, uh, uh, um, towns that have lost their industry, like Scarborough or Bridge or wherever it is, Lowestoft, Yarmouth, um, they're the end of the line. You can't, uh, that's just my understanding of, how, of a simple way of connecting one, all in, yeah. in any event. one of the things I was thinking about is um, the kind of myth that black is urban as well. Um, and there was a moment in time where being from Africa meant you were primitive and actually entrapped by the rural. Mm -hmm. So it, it, I was interested in at what place or point in time we then got stuck in the urban. And actually maybe that connection is breaking that myth that the black experience is only urban, and actually, um, quite often when people come to the UK, they will end up in urban environments, and so that is their that initial experience. But possibly before arrival, 
their experience may well have been rural. Mm. So I think it's just remembering that um, in the kind of public discourse as well. Hi. Um. I've, you wouldn't know this, but I have Scottish and Irish parentage, so you could say I'm an immigrant. And I've grown up in Bedfordshire. Now that's only 27 miles away. And in my lifetime, you know, Bedford is a community of Caribbean people, Italian people, Polish people. This has all happened in 50, 55 years. So I'm not yet 60, so in some ways this feels like yesterday. And I think there are people who are younger who see the world as being something very cosmopolitan. I think this is a sort of a gradual, in tandem thing that, that is happening. And we're all finding our own places in our own world. And something that I've always felt, and there may be, I may be vilified for this, but I have, in my lifetime, grown up, as I say, with Scottish-Irish parentage. So we're talking about Great Britain, or the, or the British Isles, you know, going out and beagling. And there is a distaste for all sorts of things like this, and there's obviously been the hunting bill, etc. And I was saying to the friend, who, who was the one who suggested we came to this together, that I've always thought, because I have, I have access to London, how displaced the person who is the immigrant is in the cities. And if you go, John Major, who only, you know, his constituency was just up the road, he's the one who did Sunday trading. Now, if you're wandering around London or any city on a Sunday, it's full of all the immigrants because they haven't got anywhere to go to. They don't connect with the land and the geography. And I've always thought the hunting, shooting, fishing community should be the ones who have cameras on their hats so they can explain to people why this is happening, what they do, and then actually go to communities and say, how do you historically or nowadays use your land? and actually have a communication and a conversation about this because I think, it would, and I think what you were talking about, you know, you were beating and all these other things as a girl. I mean, I can communicate with that and I think there's a huge dialogue and a living together that could come about. Is that something you want to respond to or should yeah, we move on um, to another comment? I'll just respond briefly. Um, I think that the, the point that we need to better understand each other, um, I, I, I kind of agree with. I think that the point at which I, we would need a whole other seminar to unpack is the idea of this kind of like a single idea of the migrant and, and them not having anywhere to go to, but um, as the, being the basis for this communication between these groups. So um, I'll just mention that because um, it would need more unpacking that we, we don't have time to do here, but... I've got to do my performance. Yeah. But is, are, there any other, are there any other final kind of points or questions that, that anyone wants to kind of share with the, with the room? I just might make a final point. Yeah. We're almost at half past, and I was going to say a few comments anyway. We don't have time for like a whole roundup of yeah. the whole day, but I would like to say, you know, I think it's fantastic that we could have this session... Also at the end of the day, because yesterday we ended the day with a session called Decolonising the Rural, which was looking at a very specific case study, which was the Sami um, communities in the north of um, Norway and Finland, Sweden. Okay. Um, and I, I just think that this is exactly the conversations that need to be happening, new conversations around this question, and particularly now in the British context as well. 
Um, and you've talked a lot about the politics of visibility. We've talked a lot over the course of the, the two days in different sessions around the violence of the rural and all of those questions I think have come up again in this session. Um, and I think what's really fantastic is that now we're going to go and spend some time watching your performances and thinking about what this, how art and performative practices, um, experimental open practices that go beyond uh, our assumptions about what can happen in the rural and how it exists, um, that we're going to have some time just experiencing that together um, and hopefully it will bring us down into another kind of space before we head back into the city and can reflect on all of the different conversations and so for me having this session and, and your thoughts on um, everything that we've talked about is, has been really valuable as a way to kind of end the discursive part um, and so I'll now say we can head over to Amphis where Jay's performance will happen. Um, it is a small enclosed space so there is a sort of limited capacity for inside but it opens out so you can just sit around and listen to the performance which has the sonic element um, and then after that we'll head down to um, Harold's performance which is at the farmhouse, we'll, we'll show you where to go um, but a huge thank you to everybody who's going with us for today.